You're listening to Video Monsters, a weekly podcast. Uh, well, uh, mostly weekly. Sometimes more, sometimes less. <sighs> All right, fine. A mostly weekly podcast of Creatures Talking Features with your hosts, Nathan Simmons and Eric Harris. Video Monsters is brought to you by the Chattanooga Film Festival and Central Cinema in Knoxville, Tennessee. Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or online at chatfilmfest.org and centralcinema865.com. And links for each of these can also be found on our pages, so be sure to follow us at Video Monster Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Hello and welcome to episode 376 of Video Monsters. I'm Nathan. I'm Eric. I'm Dan. And tonight, our dirty analysis is showing. Podcast. It's called a podcast, Nathan, and everyone has one. All right, fine. Our podcast is showing. (laughs) So bad. All right. As we, uh, yes, our podcast is showing as we are going to be discussing Carrie from 1970. I forgot to write down the year 76. Is that right? 76? 75? I don't know. The four was the novel, right? Sure. (laughs) Dan's like 76. Dan's like, stop, stop talking. It's it's 76. Uh, yes. So the, the original, uh, Carrie film, uh, with special guest, Ted Schaefer. Say hello, Ted. Hello. <laughs> we are so glad to have you back. Um, what what, so what did you think of our terrible, terrible intro to this episode? I loved it. I thought it was great. I felt like the the proper way to introduce what a, you know, such a brilliant film. <laughs> <laughs> introduce we, brilliance by with being trash. so That's the bad. It just makes it look even more brilliant. Look in comparison. <clears throat> I'm glad that you said that because uh, I'm going to bring that back up when we talk about the Carrie remake. Oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> I did re I have watched Carrie and the remake in prep for this because it'd been a while since I'd seen them. It's we'll get there. Uh, so yeah, we're discussing Carrie as we are continuing on with our Stephen King series. Uh, and Ted, super excited to have you back because we've had you on technically twice, although one of those was for the uh, the live Q and A at Chat Film Fest. Uh, so before we start diving into our analysis of Carrie, why don't you go ahead and tell everyone who you are, what you do? Uh, you know, plug giving birth to a butterfly, all of those wonderful self promotional things. Sure. My name is Ted Schaefer. I'm a filmmaker out of New York City, and uh, I made a film, my first feature, Giving Birth to a Butterfly, which played the Chattanooga Film Festival and premiered at Fantasia in 2021-22. I don't know what year it is anymore. Uh, and, anyone. Yeah, I work in a company called Dweck Productions, where we produce films like uh, We're All Going to the World's Fair, which was at Sundance in 2021, now on HBO Max. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which also screened at Chat Film Fest. A couple of years ago, yeah, two years ago, yeah. Mm-hmm. Seriously, timing—it's—it's it's all kinds of messed up. Um, yeah, giving birth to a butterfly. We absolutely adore that film here at Video Monsters. We've covered it at, again, technically three times. We did the live Q and A. We did the interview. Um, we did the interview with you all, and then we also discussed it a little bit during our chat film fest coverage. Uh, so I am super excited to talk about Carrie with you, um, especially in light of uh, some of those storytelling elements that you had in giving birth giving birth to a butterfly. But before we start diving into things, I want to start with just why Carrie, um, because you know when when I reached out to you, I let you know any of the King properties is is on the table. 
And you did have a couple of options. Um, one of the ones that you, you wanted to talk about a little bit, we did already have uh, scheduled out. But um, but when you landed on Carrie, what was your reasoning for it? Why is this the one that uh, that you really wanted to focus on? Carrie, I I believe is the biggest 180 I've made on a movie in my life, or at least it's up there because I hated this movie for several for many years. Mm. Uh, I first seen it and I saw it again years ago in a theater, which maybe helped, but I don't think that was the only reason and completely flipped and was like, what was I thinking? This movie is great. So what were some of the things that you hated about it? Because uh, along with Eric's, huh, I am very fascinated as to, uh, to why you didn't love it the first time. Yeah, I think, so I saw it in college. And as I recall, we actually watched clips of it in a class prior to watching it which is a terrible way to watch any De Palma movie. Like if you put <laughs> certain things out of context, it makes it seem really bad. And so I remember the scene, uh, it must've been when she kills her mom. It was definitely the, the blood scene. And there was probably one other scene. And I think I was more skeptical. I, I don't think I had seen much De Palma at the time. I'd probably seen Scarface and The Untouchables. So less of, and Mission Impossible. So less of his like really De Palma campy stuff. And I think I was suspect of the intent of the film and thought, this is so bad. It's I think most of Palmer's films, like you really have to understand the wavelength and what he's doing. Uh, and I think I was young enough where I didn't buy it and having seen more De Palma sense when I watched it again in a theater, I was just like, oh, this is all like, I guess I didn't buy the intentionality of it. And I've also just in general as a film watcher, become much more generous in uh i have a friend who i think it was a professor of his always says uh believe in the genius of it like like assume genius assume brilliance assume whatever is happening is intentional uh and i think that's a funner that's a more fun way to watch a movie and with the palma you watch more than one movie that does that and you go oh yeah this is his thing this is right and you hate it or you probably like it quite a bit that's interesting yeah too i, I feel like the first time i watched it i didn't hate it but like Every single time I watch this movie, I'm always kind of surprised by how experimental it films at times. It feels at times. Um, it's kind of crazy to think that this was a massive hit. And I'm, of course, looking at it from the eyes of someone born in the 90s and rather than the 70s. But like, it's so shaggy and weird and has like so many of these strange little uh, quirks to it that I think are so. I don't know, like even watching it now when I like. I don't know. It's just it's it's on its own very unique wavelength. And and yeah, I think sometimes you do have to watch it a couple times before you really like at least for me, the first time I watched it, I wasn't nearly as savvy of a movie viewer as I am now. And so there was a lot of it that just felt kind of cheesy, um, <clears throat> particularly I think like it's the editing in a lot of cases. The editing is very jarring at times. It almost feels like it's like uh you know, it's like it's inspired by Breathless or something. You know, I mean, De Palma was like a uh, a guy who grew up in that era. And I'm sure he was probably pulling from some of those more experimental mm -hmm. editing styles. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 so fascinating. Sorry, I'm rambling. So, so Eric, um, what parts <clears throat> of the editing specifically are some of the things that stand out? Because uh, I I have a I have thoughts. Uh, one of them specifically dealing with uh, the way that this film is edited well there's like the one that sticks out in my mind 
right off the bat is whenever is after the prom massacre when Carrie's about to be run down by Tommy and uh not Sue Chris, Chris. by Tommy and Chris and the way that that scene is shot is so jarring because like it cuts to her face and it does like like three cuts mm-hmm. into her face rather than just zooming straight in and then like it cuts to the car and it's so funny because like the car flips, but when it shows the perspective inside the car, it's clear that they literally just took the frame and spun it around. <laughs> uh, it's so it's like it's the kind of thing where it just seems really goofy if you're not like, it, you know, if you're not on that wavelength, you know, like it could be easily if you like if you just took that clip on its own, like you said, Ted, like if you just watch that out of context, it would feel really bizarre. Um, and I think it even like even like the fact that they pull the music cue from Psycho, like from a totally different film. That's not mm-hmm. it's not like it's some kind of obscure cue that you like only sort of recognize. It's like, no, this is the most famous piece of movie music in history outside of maybe like Jaws or something like uh, it's so it does. I could see how it could be very, uh, very strange for someone watching this movie. Dan, what are some of your initial thoughts uh some of your initial exposure to carrie um my initial exposure was when i was one year old uh, i apparently wow. watched the film um, was this your first movie <laughs> that explains so much no um my parents when i was when i was born we lived in a military base in junction city kansas and there was a drive drive-in film you know theater right next door to the barracks where they were staying and apparently my mother from like her rocking chair could see the screen so they could just tune into the radio and watch movies. So um, apparently while I was very, very young, I I watched this movie a couple of times because it would play nightly and my mother would sit and watch it. It's actually one of the few horror movies that my mother actually enjoys. We do not talk horror movies, but she really enjoyed this one growing up. So I, I was, introduced to it probably fairly young um 10 11 or so because she was a big big fan of this movie um and i think the thing that drew me to it was the fact that how blatantly de palma tries to make men uncomfortable (laughs) with this movie um as a 10 year old i was like that opening scene, I was so excited because it was like, oh my God, there is so much nudity. Like, no <laughs> one can cover anything up. It is in slow motion. I get the full on male gaze this as a, you know, burgeoning young male. And then it just takes something that you, that male gaze that men are just salivating over. And it's like, oh, well, here's the most uncomfortable thing you can think of, men, here. And just throws it right at you. And he doesn't relent in making you feel uncomfortable throughout the rest of this film. And it was one of the first films that I remember having that type of reaction to like, Oh, movies can make you feel really weird. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I feel so many things. Yeah, yeah, exa- the, exactly. The movie does it very knowingly, I think too, because like right after that scene, you get the, it, it's such a, a little detail, but it's so good. where like the principal, sees the blood on uh mrs colin it's desjardin in the book but collins mm-hmm. i think in this one sees the blood on her shorts and he like kind of recoils he's like obviously yeah. disgusted by it yeah. and he can't focus so much that he can't remember her he can't name. remember her name yeah like just the thought of the like he can't even really say what happened to her 
he's just like, oh, well, it's best if you just go home to rest. And, you know, you're excused from gym. It's, they're going out of their way to not talk about what just happened in any way. Yeah, he and won't say it, period or anything. Like, yeah, it really just kind of shows you that menstruation is still treated as a very, very dirty word. And yeah, he lets you sit in that uncomfortableness. And mm. I, I love that. I thought that was such a brilliant touch that you're uncomfortable. And in the fact that um, the teacher admits that she gets why the kids made fun of Carrie because Carrie makes her feel kind of weird. Mm-hmm. No, it's there's he's not apologizing for the fact that this weird girl makes people feel very, very weird. So if you feel weird, perfect. Yeah, right. Very challenging, very challenging first step for a filmmaker to take, like in an opening scene. Well, and that's one of the things that I do love about this movie is it's almost 50 years old. The book is also almost 50 years old. And all of these themes like are still so incredibly relevant. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, 50 years ago for it to be, oh, look at all these naked women. And then oh, one of them's having their period. Ooh, gross. No, dirty, gross. And, you know, like I think about uh, all of the posts that I see online, um, you know, like of women who are just breastfeeding. And all of the comments were like, that's disgusting. You should cover up. And then on their own feed, they'll have, you know, half naked women. And it's like, it's so bizarre that it's, if this is the nudity that I want to see, then it's good nudity. But if it's like part of the the natural functioning human body, ooh, gross, get it away. Mm. And, and I think that that is just, again, I think that it's fascinating that it's still relevant 50 years later. I also think that it is incredibly fucking depressing that it is still just as relevant we, almost 50 we years hired- later. We switched from a female guidance counselor at my middle school to a, a male guidance counselor this year because the middle school guidance counselor went to be a principal somewhere. And the guidance counselor getting hired, he's a young man. He's about 23 or 24. Full-blown admitted he would not be comfortable handing out tampons to the girls. I, that, that, and like, oh, I was like, we, we, still hired, we, we still hired this man. And the, my principal looked at me. She's like, well, you're still here. I know you'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, all right. Wow. Oh, okay, but still, the fact that, in, in like you said, in this modern times, here's a a young man who just can't bring himself to hand out tampons to twelve year olds. Yeah. Uh, super quick, since we are talking about the opening scene, I want to give a huge shout out to Megan Duffy's short "What It Feels Like for a Girl." Uh, that it was only like a minute long that screened at Chat Film Fest this year, where it's just a, a woman coming home from work, I guess, gets in the se- gets in the shower, has her period, and there's just like period blood everywhere, and it looks very uh, gelatinous, and then like she just rubs it all over her face, and that's it. That's the short, <laughs> and it's 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 so bizarre, and it's one of the things that when I watched it, I was like, what, what, I I don't fully understand what the point of it is but i think that that's kind of the point is it's what it feels like for a girl and i i, I can't relate to that and i love that like i love that she made that short uh and so yeah i, I just uh, want to give a huge shout out to that and uh you know plug that as a, a short to play before watching carrie because yeah. again almost 50 years still relevant so um so I, I just want to start some of my thoughts with Ted. When you first saw this, you hated it, and it took a 180. 
Eric, when you first saw it, you thought that it was weird and and kind of scruffy and rough around the edges. Mm-hmm. And Dan, when you first saw it, viewed a lot of the making the audience uncomfortable. All of that coming together is kind of my thoughts on this film. I, I adore this film. So don't worry, Eric. All of my I have thoughts about this movie <laughs> are not. I assume they pertain to the remake. <laughs> well, we will get to the remake when we get to the remake because that's more of a, you know, almost an afterthought. Once we get to the end, I just want to touch on a few things in the remake. But no, all of my I have thoughts, which typically is, yeah, it's fine, but oof, man, I have a lot of problems with it. That's not the case with Carrie. I think that it is an amazing movie. I adore this movie. I, I will gladly rewatch it any day of the week. I love it. The things about it that are kind of rough around the edges are the things that, in a way, relate the most to the King story. Because, uh, as you know, this is the only King novel that I've actually read up to this point. Mm. So in some ways, it fits perfectly. But then in other ways, uh, the changes from the novel kind of give it an, an awkward pacing, which is why I wanted to know which specific parts of the editing that you were talking about. But then, like the the end, like once it gets to the the prom sequence to the to the end, like that feels like a completely different movie. And so there's so much going on in this, and there are so many themes that I feel like again are incredibly relevant, from from bullying to uh, to, to puberty to um, you know family dynamics to uh, to school religious dynamics, fanaticism religious fanaticism. There's so much about this movie that we can and probably will spend a a couple of hours talking about trying not to go too, too deep in it just yet. But I love this movie. There's so much about it to love. It's also true that there are some things about this movie that I think are weak, not in a way that I feel like detracts from the movie. You know, when people talk about how Carrie is just a masterpiece, I don't disagree with them. But there are also some things that I think the remake does that I actually kind of like a little bit better, but we'll get to that when we get to the remake piece. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to start with, just because we've been uh, doing this uh, pretty much on all of the, the King Analysis episodes that we've been doing so far, talking a little bit about the difference between the book and and the movie. The in, in the book, when it jumps back and forth with the here's the main narrative and then here's like the uh, the... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? The the hearing, like later on, uh, here are the excerpts from Sue Snow's book. Here's the excerpts from uh, this other book on telekinesis. Like as it's jumping back and forth between all of that in the book, I think that that works great because it's giving you so much context and it's giving you so much about the, the world in which this is taking place in a way that you don't necessarily need those connective threads from scene A to scene B because it's here's scene A we're going to jump all the way down to scene F. What happens between it? It doesn't matter. Here's the context of this other thing that relates, but it's not part of what's actually happening in the main timeline. In mm-hmm. the movie, I, I think that uh, De Palma does a great job of adhering very closely to the main narrative of the book. But at times, I feel like that's actually one of the things that hurts it with the with the narrative because it doesn't jump around to those other pieces. It doesn't skip to uh, to hearings. It doesn't skip to Sue Snow's diary, which I'm glad. I'm glad that it doesn't work that way because I don't think that that would have been a very effective movie. But at some points, it was almost like they were afraid to fill in those narrative gaps themselves. 
and and it felt like there was so much that was happening around Carrie and not necessarily yeah. with Carrie. Like rewatch because I just rewatched it again today. I love this movie. I I need to keep emphasizing that I do love this movie. Very strongly recommend. <laughs> Up until the prom sequence, Carrie's a barely in it, or at least if she's in it, she's very. <clears throat> Just very cardboard. I don't feel like she's mm-hmm. actively well, engaging that much in the movie. There's there's well, scenes. There's a couple of scenes. Yeah, I think that's by design. I it's something I kind of admire about it. It's it's really interesting to me that this movie is structured in a way where Carrie's kind of a supporting character in her own movie for the most part. Um, that she's kind of pushed into the background, which you know kind of almost feels like the movie itself is bullying her. <laughs> um, it, it I and that's another thing I always forget too is it's like she's not really in it that like it spends a good chunk of the time. Like you, you know, you get the opening sequence and then you get her going home with her mother and seeing like how horrible and her home life is with her mom and how just like how under her thumb she is. And then it cuts away from Carrie for quite a while to focus on like her, the bullies, you know, and to focus on them being punished. Like there's a very long sequence of uh, like Chris and Sue and, and their friends, like, being uh in detention having to do like sit-ups yep. and stuff out on the football scene <laughs> which that scene is so much fun i i love the score the yeah, Pino just... score. <laughs> uh, yeah so much of this this movie uh the music feels very either 70s almost screwball comedy or uh, like soap opera of romance, because mm-hmm. man, especially that opening scene where uh, yes, Dan, oh, you have Dan's holding soundtrack. up his vinyl of it. Yes, uh, pick, pl- plug, pick up the waxwork. Oh, oh damn, that's incredible! That artwork is incredible. It's an amazing soundtrack. <clears throat> this movie has such a dynamic score; it's really incredible, and it and it like. Like I, I, again in that one scene in particular, it's so fun because it like starts off really upbeat and fun. It just slowly starts like chugging, along, going slower and slower until it's chugging, and it like it it does such a good job of like evoking the emotions that the characters are feeling at every given moment. Like sometimes the the score is like absolutely fucking bananas, going all over the place, and then yeah, sometimes it's kind of cheesy seventies and stuff. But it's just like from from a, on a scene to scene basis, it is so radically different. It's constantly transforming. Uh, it's really excellent. Yep. Uh, sorry, I feel like I inter- interrupted you a little bit there, Ted. Oh no, no, it's it, it's fine. Uh, yeah, I was I was just saying that it feels it feels like Carrie's not a huge part of her own movie, which feels weird because of how iconic her scenes are. You know, like the scene where uh, she's having dinner with her mother and the storms. Uh, there's a storm. Their and Last the, Supper. Yeah. And the lightning keeps going, and it keeps uh, you know. Uh, like shedding light on the, the the Last Supper poster behind them, or whatever. It's not a poster, but the painting. Like it's a beautifully shot scene, and it gives you so much of the relationship between Carrie and her mother. And then definitely starting at the um, at the prom scene. But I, I don't I don't know. It, it just feels like she's not <laughs> in it enough. And and again, I think that it's because of the book. In the book, when it's showing those other scenes it'll cut to, and here's this backstory on when Carrie was a kid and rained down stones. And then it jumps forward to uh, the hearing about how she burned down the town. And then it just, so there's so much other context that even though in the book, the main narrative might not have Carrie actually doing or saying that much. There's always the conversation surrounding her. Well, I, from a, 
from a, a school standpoint, this is what I found interesting about, about this is when there are instances of bullying in school, what's usually focused on are the act of bullying itself and the bullies. Very rarely, unless a point is made to do so, is the person being bullied talked about. Mm-hmm. It's almost because it's... I don't know. It's it's harder to deal with the reaction necessarily than the action itself because you you know what the action is. The action was these people did this and this is how we're punishing them. It's tough to know what the reaction from the bully is going to be. And it's it's one of the things I hate most about working in school sometimes is that when things like this happen, not enough of focus is put on how it makes the bullied person feel. And I think that this movie does a good job of mirroring that by keeping Carrie almost at arm's length. Mm. You're not letting her hurt the world that much. You see what she does. You know, you see that she's looking up books and you see that her mom bullies her as well, but you don't get much interior thought from Carrie. She rarely speaks. Mm. I mean, it takes a lot of coaxing to get her to even do that. And that is, I think, a wonderful little touch that you're purposely, you don't get to know Carrie that well because no one bothers to get to know her that well. Yeah. Um, well, and I think I, that, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, I was just gonna say, I do also think that is um, a specific to De Palma thing. He isn't as interested in characters, I think, in general in his movies in this same way yeah. because he's he's exaggerating things so much that I almost feel like his version of this movie wouldn't work if Carrie was too much of a character. Because, mm-hmm. like, I, I by chance went and saw um, Body Double, which I had mm-hmm. seen before, but it was buying a friend at a free ticket, and it's similar where like, he likes archetypes because he's drawing in order to be specific. He's actually being so broad that right. I do think. I, I understand it as like a, I don't know if it's a flaw, it's a flaw if you want that. So I get, yeah, it's, it's hard to parse because I think he, he probably couldn't make a movie work in his tone if he made the characters to realize. <laughs> well, and, and I think that that actually relates really well to, uh, to what you said at the beginning, Ted, about like how, when you first saw it, you only saw it in parts where if you are not connected to these characters individual scenes are not going to work. And and again, I, I feel like I need to keep prefacing all of my critiques or, or views of flaws of this film. It's not like, uh, here's my problems with it. I, I really love Carrie. It's just as I was rewatching it today, I had, you know, an extra critical eye and I was like, hey, wait a second. But again, none of these are like problems with it. It's just a, huh, I'm still trying to fully work out uh, how I feel on some of this stuff. But I feel like uh, I feel like De Palma's Carrie gives you the emotion of Carrie. Dan, like you were saying, you know, it, it's almost like putting us in, uh, in in conversation with the bullies and not having a better understanding of what Carrie is actually going through. And and I think that it does work because you know when I think of Carrie, when I think of the movie, I think of how it makes me feel. Like I think about right. you know like how how powerful the uh, the prom sequence is in part because of the way that it's shot, but like it's so emotionally raw, even though she's not saying anything and she's just standing there almost the entire time. But it's one of those scenes that is just burned into my brain 
pun intended, um, with, with how powerful it is. But it's also one of those things that if you weren't already connected to these characters and you just watched that in isolation, you'd be like, huh, all right, all right, um, okay, so a bunch of people are dying, but what? why is this girl so crazy? What's going on? And and I feel like that's the thing with some of those other scenes that uh, that you were talking about, Ted, like when uh, when she kills her mom. Like, that is a really, really emotional scene because of, of the emotion that I feel like is given to us throughout the film, but not necessarily through narrative, through through almost like context or just tone yeah. or, the, or the way that it's shot. So good. Or, Again, I, it's great. I'm not saying that any of this is no, a no, flaw. No, yeah, I, I, I want to push back a bit because sure. I, I think this what I love most about this movie is I think it has really strong characters. And it's part of the reason why I have a huge problem with the remake because it 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 flattens the characters a lot. And I think the reason why it works so well is because they're so they are so thorny. You know, like this movie spends a whole lot of time with Chris and her boyfriend uh played by john travolta like in a car arguing with one another and i feel like you get so much context for who these characters are like i love that john travolta like the back and forth between them is so fascinating because it's very clear that chris thrives on being in control of him and he has absolutely no idea that (laughs) she's playing him so like a like a fiddle i mean like he thinks that he's in control because he can, you know, strong arm or whatever, slap her around every now and then. But he's an he's a moron. And she is just totally has him under her thumb. And it's and the movie never really makes like, and you know, it's not like she steps out of the car and she's like, oh, yeah, I got him again or whatever. It like it has fun with it. And it even like to kind of get to the point of like what's so fun about Brian De Palma films is like he has a tone that's so unlike anything where like, you know, when. It, it this movie I think is really funny. Like I don't know if it gets enough credit for how funny it is. Um, like when Chris, like uh, whenever they're in the when Chris and I can't remember what John Travolta's character's name is. Um, whenever they're in the car and he's like mad at her and she starts giving him a blowjob and she's talking like she like she's just talking like a normal person. Like it's <laughs> like the the talent that it takes to pull that off is incredible. <laughs> um, but like, it's just so funny and silly, but like, again, it just shows you that she is fully in control of the moment at every, any given, like the entire step of the way. Um, I don't think that's that the characters aren't realized. It's so much that they're broad, but in, like, it's really hard to do what De Palma does where it's like, yeah, the, he uses camp and cliche to create characters who on the surface seem really kind of like basic and archetypal. And then he complicates it in ways that just give you enough without being like, and here's their backstory. And here's like, he exactly. doesn't know about that. I almost don't know if this is fair to say, but it feels like the better King adaptations do various versions of distancing themselves from the real specific nitty gritty that I think King is really good at in the novel, but it's really hard to communicate that. And right. Off as easy. Like the shining does it in the opposite way, but also kind of keeps a distance from the characters because of the craziness of what's happening in the world that Sting mm-hmm. uh, Steve King creates. I, I I don't know if that's a that's a new thought, so I don't know if I agree with it yet, but I almost feel like <laughs> you need some sort of distance because you can't do what he does in a novel. Yeah, no, right. I'm, I'm I'm right there with you. I think that the best King adaptations, and again, I'm still very under kinged, so you know. Take this with a grain of salt, but I feel like the best King adaptations are able to keep the like the core of what the story is and the heart about why these things matter and who these characters are and why you care about them 
without necessarily sticking to the specific details. Um, so, like, for example, uh, and, and then I'll come back to something else, but for example, I actually think that it works so much better in the movie to have Carrie more underweight than overweight like she is in the book. Mm-hmm. Not only do you know. Not only do I think that it adds to just like some of that waifishness to where it seems like uh, like Sissy Spacek, um, you know, her portrayal of Carrie, it does seem like she would would have been pushed around a lot. But also with her being a bit more underweight, it actually gives a little bit more of a plausible explanation as to why maybe she hasn't had her period yet. You know, like yeah, mm-hmm. she she might just not be as developed. And so it, it's just like those little tiny things that I think actually work. Um, you know, like there's the the one character uh, who is uh, the secretary in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You know, you, you only see her like yeah. a couple of times during the... Edie McClurg. Edie McClurg, yeah. You see her a couple of times during the uh, the detention scene. That's what I pictured Carrie based off of the book. And I mm-hmm. think that having Sissy Spacek is a much better choice for for what this movie was because again I feel like it gives you more of that feeling of how weak Carrie seems on the outside. Um, also, I think that it works a little bit with you know like as, uh, as as fanatical as her mother is. I think it makes more sense that they would be more on the lighter side and just in terms of not uh, not giving into excess as much. So it, like those types of things, which might not necessarily have been any sort of conscious decision of this is what we are trying to do with those characters. I still feel like they worked. Um, and and be, because De Palma is still keeping the heart of, of why the story matters and why you care about these characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I forgot the other piece that I was going to say. I said that it was going to come back to a thing. Eric, <laughs> you were talking about the characters not being realized as much. Ted, you said something. I forgot what I was going to say, but I will come back to it <laughs> when I realize uh, what I was going to say. Because I do not remember it right now. Um, I yes. I think that like, so a perfect example of what, what I think Ted is talking about and how like he manages to evoke so much character through these incredibly broad characterizations is when, when Piper Laurie dies... Uh, when when uh, is it Martha White? Mar- Margaret. It's Margaret White. Yeah. Good God. I'm. It's too late, guys. Sure. I'm. I'm dead. Uh, whenever she dies, it is such a such an incredible sequence overall. Because again, it is so just hysterically over the top. Like she is literally crucified in her house. She literally becomes you know a martyr for her cause or whatever. And when she dies, she's like she sounds like she's having an orgasm, which I believe is how Piper Laurie was directed to play it. And you get the sense that this is a woman who has kept herself so closed off and is so buttoned up or whatever. Like she's, she's so there's a word I had for it earlier and I can't remember what it is, but basically like she has not allowed herself to give into any kind of indulgence whatsoever that the release of death is so sweet for her that she literally has an orgasm when she's dying. Like that is so it's the kind of thing that like you you read something if you read something like that on a page, it's like this is ridiculous. And like Piper Laurie thought this was like a dark comedy, no matter how many Brian, how many times Brian De Palma told her this isn't a comedy. <laughs> she still played it that way. And it fits perfectly because it is like kind of funny and weird, but like it fits that character so perfectly in an emotional way. Um yeah. 
I just well, I also King's themes like taken at face value are so in this especially like if you were just like the fact I didn't realize she was supposed to be overweight or fat in the book which makes sense to me but it's such a cliche of like this kind of poor overly religious bigger girl like and the fact that De Palma worked against that I thought I think is really smart but I also feel like the religious stuff all that stuff you can get into the details in a novel in a way that on its surface it might seem really kind of basic and and uh cliche mm-hmm. but he he really minds it, but to communicate that in such a short period of time, De Palma's version of that is just amp it up to 11. And I think that's yeah. brilliant. It's like, just turn it up so much that you're like, yeah, 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 it's stupid. But then you see the subtlety in it because of how unsubtle everything is, the characters. Yeah. And that death scene is a perfect example because he even cuts to the Jesus that she has with the <laughs> yeah. eyes right after. And you're like, oh, yeah, I get it. But you can't, you know, he's in on it. You know, he knows, which makes right. it work. I think, yeah, I think that's the thing is the movie is so clearly in on the dark humor. Like it is so it's making it's drawing those parallels so directly um, that like it's like, yeah, I'm in on the joke, too. Like, you don't have to make fun of this or whatever. Uh, You know, we're we we understand what we're doing here. So Um, I, I think that one of the things that's fascinating about this conversation is how similar of a conversation it is that we had about the shining and about how Kubrick like was so over the top with the tone and not with the narrative and, and like why that film I think is so divisive. Like it is, it is an amazing film, but also a terrible King adaptation, but also a really good King adaptation because it does give so much of that dread, but it also strays so far. And, and, it, it's so weird to talk about um, just the difference between how this conversation applied to The Shining and how drastically different it was versus De Palma's uh, Carrie. And again, narratively, how closely it does fit the book, but then the ways that it departs, like it, it's again, like giving some of that shorthand for these characters. Uh, and that reminds me, I remembered what I was going to say. Uh, using some of those broad strokes, using some of just the cliches to give who these characters are in a way that works that you know these characters without needing all the backstory. Uh, PJ Soul's character. I don't even remember her name. I'm sure that she had one, but I don't know if anyone <laughs> would actually remember that without uh, scrolling through um, uh, IMDb. Norma, apparently, is her name. <laughs> I, I don't remember. or I, I don't know anything about her character except for the fact that PJ souls was playing her and she had that like very playful hat. I I think had a rainbows on it. And so like, you know, everything about that character just by how she looks and, uh, and how Mm -hmm. she's being portrayed. And, and I think that it's a lot of that stuff that Eric, like you said, gives this movie so much of its feel. And, and Ted, like you said, Mm -hmm. gives a lot of those broad strokes that, that do give the strong characters without necessarily, uh, diving too much into that character development. Yeah. The Palma trusts his actors to like give a performance that really like uh, brings these characters to life. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, there's also a lot that I think we, we've already talked about this a number of times in uh, other King episodes, but the whole, like a picture is worth a thousand words and how descriptive King is compared to what you see on screen. During that opening scene, when they're throwing the tampons at Carrie, and uh, and and the uh, the coach tells everyone to get out, and as they're all walking away, like Sue Snell has that 
just like a, a very momentary glimpse of what have I done? Like it's it's so short, but you get just a tiny mm-hmm. glimpse of regret. And I don't think that I caught that the first several times that I saw this movie. It wasn't until reading the book where at that point in the book, you know, like King spends a few pages going into like, you know, and and this is her future and how this is going to affect her. Like because he spends so much other time with, oh, and she regretted this and here then is how it uh, impacts things. It's easier to miss in the film. But De Palma trusted enough. You know what? I don't have to explain this. I don't have to have her saying, oh, my, what have I done? Because, yeah, you can get it just from the way that she looks. And there's a lot of those moments that, that again, they're not necessarily fleshed out in terms of giving a ton of context. But there's enough that as you're watching it, it gives you that feeling to, to bring you in. Mm-hmm. Um. So, Ted, when you said that um, that when you finally realized, like, oh, man, this movie is amazing and, and I adore it. And like you said, one of the biggest 180s you've ever had. What were some of the things that specifically drew you in and, and made you kind of love this movie and, and view it as a masterpiece? I think the way he plays with artifice in this especially is like it's just on such a high level and when you understand what he's doing and how he's playing with that. And it's a lot of what we're talking about, right? Where he's creating a world. I mean, some of these, like, I think he's so good at getting great performances from each of these characters, but Piper Laurie kind of does feel like she's in another movie. And yet it's so perfect for this movie. Mm -hmm. And it's things like that where he's like, I'm going to make this so big. But then um, uh, Sue, what's her name? Um, Amy Irvin. Yeah. She she gives a very a mostly very naturalistic performance, and Sissy's kind of Sissy is like unbelievable. Like she really has to thread a needle where she can exist in the entire world, and it's she's the reason it all makes sense and all works. And she's mm-hmm. just so good that you believe her with her mom, and then you believe her with the teacher and with Sue, and you're just like, oh yeah, that's that's why it all works. But even Sue with her boyfriend, like some of that is really like he's kind of a cheese ball, and like. And so is John Travolta. I actually, the first, I remember first time I saw it, I liked it thinking this might be John Travolta's like, I like his perfect role. Like he's so <laughs> douche. Like he's, it, it's better than Saturday Night Fever. Like, cause he is kind of a douche. Like, I mean, yeah. I don't know. What that well. he, he comes off in that way. That really works. And I think I just have such a respect for anybody who can create such a specific tone and especially taking an adapted material that, this tone like the the book i i haven't read the entire thing and i had i tried to read it years ago and i fell off for whatever reason but i remember it was nothing like the movie in in terms of tone but it still captures the same thing Mm -hmm. the same sort of feelings that he's going after yeah one of my one of my favorite examples of just using like a scene with as a feeling was when after sue had asked her boyfriend to take care and he'd been like no 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 i'm not gonna do that and then it cuts into Sue's doing her homework while he's yeah. just watching like an episode of Gunsmoke. Yeah, he's watching a Western or something. Yeah. There's no no talking going on. And then just all of a sudden he just goes, like, fine, I'll do it. Okay. <laughs> it's just such a great scene because there was no needling going on. No, no pushing that particular narrative through. It's it just seemed like a very like you said, she's very naturalistic in the way she is, and that that really shined in that moment because then she just kind of looks up smiles goes back to doing her homework yeah. again and that's the scene 
And it was, it was just such a wonderful way to present their relationship without having all, all that necessary, the speeches or anything like that. Yeah. There's like a mix of little touches like that. And then there's even some of the big touches that scene, the, the 360 camera shot, which is <laughs> so good. And it's so good. Because brilliant. It's, it's that it's the rule of 27s in comedy, you know, where if you do something, it, is too many times it's funny, but if you keep going, it becomes unfunny, and then it becomes funny again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of like it becomes annoying, and then it becomes not annoying again, and then by the end of it, it's like the exact amount of time to be and, and insanity that it's like, oh, this is brilliant. This is so perfectly crafted. He made so many choices with the prom. So many great choices, and they're yeah bold. It's, they're very bold choices. Yeah. The 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 <laughs> one that I really really noticed upon this rewatch because it's like. I think this is only probably the second time I've ever watched the Screen Factory Blu-ray that they put out. The utter silence after the bucket. Yes. Dump yeah. the butt on her. Yeah. You There's only hear the bucket. Or no nothing. You just hear the sound of that bucket. Yeah. And I'm like, this is such a moment where so many other directors would have put, that's when the music would have come in or, you know, mm. you would have they would have used the sound to be very overwhelming at that moment, but yeah. he just cuts it and lets it, lets just the visuals of it really sink in. Um, it, it's Every, just got such a wonderful eye when he's shooting. Everything about the prom sequence is just abs. I mean, it is so masterful mm-hmm. because like you, th- this movie is so good at building dread because you know, something bad is going to happen. And he teases that out for like 10 minutes, it feels like. He teases out for the rope, the eyes, the rope, the bucket. That shot where it's going across the gym, where he's tracking every, you see, it's like one shot that's unbroken. You see PJ Souls and her her boyfriend or whatever getting the votes, dumping them under the table. And then it tracks across over to the stage, up the rope. You see the, literally, when they announce, it's such a, like in any other movie, the scene where they announced Carrie White as the prom queen, you'd be on the ground level or whatever, but you literally see it from the perspective of the bucket mm-hmm. of the impending doom. And, and it takes so long. Like they announce it and it's, it's an unrealistic amount of time. It is an <laughs> agonizing. It is. The slow yeah. motion is so agonizing because you're just like, <laughs> for God's sakes, let it go. Like, just do it already. And then when mm-hmm. it happens, you're like, fuck, no, take it back. Please go back. This is horrible. <laughs> like it is so. Oh, it's just utterly brilliant in so, every way. Here's my thought on what happens. Dan, I'm so glad that earlier you said for most of the movie, it's kind of putting us in the situation of the bullies where Carrie's almost not even in her own movie and she's not really all that important. She doesn't have that many lines. We're watching most of it from the perspective of the bullies in the town and the school and just everyone else. I feel like during uh, during that 360 camera scene when they're dancing and they're spinning and the camera keeps going around them, I feel like in that moment, De Palma is saying, you've been watching this movie as the town, as the bullies watching Carrie. And now you are kind of going through the this Wizard of Ozian uh, twister and you are going to watch the rest of the movie as Carrie. Which is why so much of the things that happen at the prom and the way that it's shot and some of the decisions that bug me from a narrative standpoint make such perfect sense from a thematic standpoint. Like, for example, how, God bless, how fucking long it takes for Sue 
to realize what's going on to yeah. try to say anything that like she's she's going, she's like she's very walking slowly back, tracing the, looking the it rope up, up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah she's not yelling carrie move she's not yelling to the coach hey coach something's about to happen like no it is an unrealistic totally irrational amount of time of slowly watching this thing happen and I feel like that's putting you in the headspace of for Carrie in that moment as she was just crowned prom queen, everything slowed down. So I don't feel like yeah. it's a thematic, this is what you need for the suspense of the terror that's about to come up. It's for Carrie, time is slowed down and she's trying to enjoy this mo- this moment so much. And and then, you know, like when the pig's blood does fall on her and and you get that uh, that camera pan, the the like split screen. Like that is you watching Carrie split and it's just, God, there's so, mm-hmm. so many beautiful technical elements during that, uh, during the, the prom scene and on that for me, mm. I adore the back half of this movie so much that any of those that are like, well, this, well, that it doesn't matter. Like all of that gets erased as well, think- basic is standing there. You get the split screen. She's just mm-hmm. wide eyed and still everything's catching on fire. Mm-hmm. It is oh so fucking raw, and she I looks unbelievable. It. She looks like a she looks like she is truly possessed. It's, it's yeah. crazy, but like I think that I don't I don't think the prom scene works without that stuff in the earlier half. Like I think it's so important to I I think it really works well to have Carrie backgrounded because she is so powerless throughout the movie. Like again, right. the, the the power is totally against her. She has no control over her own narrative in any way. And then you get this, like the the scene with her and Tommy dancing and at the table and everything is like genuinely so sweet. Even though like William Cat is like super pushy <laughs> at first with her to like going out with him, like he seems like he is genuinely having a good time and he actually cares for her and he wants to make sure that she has a good time and she is actually enjoying herself. And it makes the the scene afterward just fucking Sorry. heartbreaking. <laughs> Sorry, Ted, go ahead. It's, it's, no, I was just to jump on that. It's like uh, the first time we genuinely see somebody being nice to Carrie, that's when we switch to her perspective. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything goes wrong. But also, yeah, his obviously he loves split screen. But yeah, I, I didn't really think about how much that's really not employed until boom the mm. prom scene and then it goes full full to palm and he has some touches but just to like cue you that that's where it's gonna go but it's so fun how he just he just goes so <laughs> hard in that last 15 well, 20 and i i think the thing that's so like the 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 best choice uh, like uh, throughout the entire prom sequence i think the smartest choice of all is to have sissy spacek play it as if she is just as horrified by what's happening as everyone around her like it's one of my my biggest criticisms of the remake because in the remake it's very X-Men like she's pointing her hands out and like she is actively attacking these people. And in the original in the De Palma film, like you get the sense that Carrie literally I mean again, like you said, her her per, she has split. Like she is not in control of what's happening. She's just unleashing every bit of the rage that has that she has kept inside of her for, you know, her entire life. And she like it's it's and again the the other smart thing too is like she even kills the one person who is nice to her like you do get a scene earlier on with her and uh miss collins where you know she's like oh tommy ross asked you to the prom like you know she's like really sweet to her and it's 
talking to her about her prom experience or everything and trying to like make her feel better about it because Carrie thinks that there's that Tommy's doing it as a practical joke. Um, but yeah, in that moment, she is even when she is lashing out at these people, she is still not in control of her narrative. She mm. is still powerless to what is going on around her. And it's and again, Sissy Spacek with just that wide eyed, slowly walking around, watching everything and the build up with the water hose. and everything. I mean, it is just it is one of the, I mean, truly, I think it's one of the greatest sequences in any movie ever. It's just brilliant. I agree. <laughs> and and tragic. I, I think it is it, importantly it is very tragic. It is not a reven- it is not vengeance. Yeah, it's not vengeful, it's sad. I think that's the beauty of using melodrama or camp is that you're you're just throwing these big emotions that that almost anesthetizes the audience until it suddenly switches and it becomes so authentic that you're like, "Oh, mm. Christ." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Speaking of things being kind of tragic and and like how that has affected Carrie and and just some of her development, um, Eric and or Dan, I might need you to refresh my memory a little bit. In the book, do they switch the ballots or did she just outright win? I actually, you know, Carrie is one of the few Stephen King books I haven't. Well, not one of the few. It's one of the ones I haven't read. It's been 20 years since I've read it. Oh. I don't I don't Dang. remember, honestly. I only just read it a few weeks ago, but a lot <laughs> of stuff's happened in the last few weeks. I, no. I want to say that they didn't switch the ballots and that like uh, because they had to count them twice. Like they had to do a revote and then she won by one vote. And uh, and and I think that I like that better than how it's done in the movie because in the book it's almost giving her it's almost giving her more development in showing that yeah a lot of it might have just been because of Tommy but she won because everyone there actually voted for and mm-hmm. in the movie it, it it like it's almost like it takes away more of her agency of the only way which is why it's a smart win, decision which is why it fits thematically yes but it's also one of those things that I that does bug me a little bit. As much as I love the movie and as much as I do think that a lot of this thematically works, already talked about some of that, the the way that you're watching it from the standpoint of the bully, like all of those things, yes, I agree. It's also true that I don't love how Carrie doesn't really have that much development. Now, I'm, I'm not saying she doesn't have any. And there are times that I do think, yeah, there's huge leaps in, in her character development but it's some of those little things with as much other smart decisions that were made to give those little nods that play huge roles. I, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that change in the movie. And, and, and it's, it's, it's not really an important one, but it's something that does bug me a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think that Brian De Palma is pretty ruthless in terms of, how Carrie is treated in the movie and it, and it feels like it is, I don't know. I like the idea that her big moment, we, you know, her slow motion. I can't believe this is happening. I'm so happy. I'm the prom queen moment is actually not real. That it is truly a dream because this movie has this, you know, very lots of slow motion. It's very dreamy. The opening sequence and the prom sequence both have that same kind of like slow-mo, 
dreamy feel to it. And so I like the idea that it is literally a dream that becomes a nightmare um, and that there is nothing about it that resembles her reality. Um, yeah. I mean, again, like I, it, it sounds mean to say it that way, but I think that <laughs> again, that's, that's the power of the film is it is like, this is a person who is just pushed and pushed and pushed until she explodes. I mean, I think that's what's so relevant about it. Like, I feel like any body can relate to that in some way. And again, the Palma is so good at pushing those emotions to the limit um, that it's just, you, you truly feel for her at that moment. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it's one of those things that with the movie, I think that it works and it doesn't bug me within the movie itself. And, and, and I hate to be doing some of that of just like, Oh, they changed this in the book. It, it's just one of those little things that, because of what it does to Carrie's character, it, it it's just one of those things that gives me a little pause. And part of the reason that I mention it, uh, in especially uh, how it relates to Carrie's character, I feel like a very similar thing is done with the very ending of the movie, where you know, as all the rocks are starting to fall and she's running into the closet and and hiding, I for the longest time watching this movie. I thought that that was, you know, like like the devil coming to take his due or, you know, like God punishing them. Like, I felt like that was not her doing. I felt like it was something else that was going on, which is why she was so scared and running and trying to hide from it, because I didn't think that she was the one causing that to happen. After reading the book and realizing like, oh, no, like that was a thing that she was doing with with all of her powers I feel like in the movie, it it strips a little bit of that away. Now, not entirely. I do think that the emotional core is there because she just mm. killed her mom. Like, I get all of the context that's leading up to it. But in that moment, it didn't seem like her, uh, like her powers were so over the top that she had completely lost control and uh, that she and her mom, you know, were being... Uh, th- that she was basically bringing her and her mom down together. It felt more just like... All right, I'm, I don't know how to end the movie. Let's just throw rocks at him. Sure, why not? I don't know. Just something about the ending for me doesn't work, and I think that it plays in a little bit again, like with the ballot switching, to where it's taking away some of her agency. With as powerful as she is during the prom sequence, with you know as amazingly just beautiful and raw as all of that is, there's some of these other moments that I feel like they just don't. Like they don't line up as well. They they don't fit that same theme quite as well. And again, that could just be me nitpicking. It could be because of having read Carrie recently. Like a lot of that stuff is still very fresh on my mind. But I also didn't love the ending of the book. The ending of the book felt very just like ah, and then she gets stabbed and is now dead. The end. So yeah, I, yeah go ahead. I I think it's because De Palma is doing something thematically different than the book where the book seems more interested. I think King said something about how, Oh, in the book I was more interested in this idea of women sort of broadly and having some power and and the sort of fear of men, uh, men have of women's sexuality. And I think De Palma is interested in that, but he's almost more interested in the sort of like conservatism of both this town and her mother. And it's like the shades Mm -hmm. of it and how sort of, kind of escape from that so the ultimate ending in his mind i think is you don't know if carrie does it or not or if the mom is right and they literally get sucked into hell because carrie really is 
Like it almost, to me, mm-hmm. the thing that's very fun about it is it almost, you could track it from the mom's perspective and be like, oh, she's right. <laughs> yeah. She yeah. Crucified. She turns into Jesus and then she gets sucked into hell because her daughter bled and became a horrible person when she felt like, and it, I think he's playing with that. And I think that's why he does it is so that you don't know if it's Carrie's doing or if it's literally, they are getting sucked into hell. I, I think yeah. On it. You know, I think with, it's with that read, oh. I'm actually fully on board <laughs> with the, if you watch the movie from the mom's perspective. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Complaint withdrawn. You've sold me on it, Ted. <laughs> for, for as broad as the movie is overall, I think what's brilliant about it is it is, again, I think the shagginess is what sells it because it is never very clear about its intent. Like I, one of the, one of the things I love most about the movie that I always kind of forget about, again, I always forget about it is the, you know, you always think about Carrie and her relationship with her mother as being this very oppressive thing. And it, and it is like her mother is, you know, she's beating her with the Bible and forcing her to say these like very uh, broadly misinterpreted uh, Bible verses and all these things. And but like what I really like about it is that you do get the sense that Margaret sincerely loves her daughter. You know, mm-hmm. the whole the whole point of the thing is she's like, I should have killed myself, you know, when when I had you. When I had you when it when it when he entered me or something. It's like so specific yeah. the way she says it where the implication seems to be that she was raped or taken advantage of or feels that way retrospectively. And you're like, oh wow, that actually yeah, it like it's such a again, yeah, it's like what a broad stroke of a character who's like a crazy fanatic and then he just gives you these little things where like oh that's maybe she's Mm -hmm. like really broken you know yeah yeah i mean like she you know the whole the idea behind it is she couldn't kill carrie because she loved her too much and that Mm -hmm. and she feels like that is her ultimate sin is that she couldn't bring herself to prevent carrie from coming into this world and i mean honestly like if she had prevented carrie from coming into this world it would have saved a lot of people a lot of heartache and I mean, again, the movie is super like messy with these thematics and and it doesn't like fall on one side or the other. It, uh, you know, even though like from an outsider's perspective, Margaret White seems like such a horrible person. It's like, no, she's doing these things because she also was probably abused and was raised in this like ultra conservative fundamentalist uh, household or some way and she's passing that on to Carrie in some way but she's doing it because she's trying to protect her like the yeah, when but, whenever but Carrie talks same... about going to the prom her her big you know she's like no you're not going to do it and then whenever you know Carrie finally takes charge and is like no I'm doing this like she finally gets her own a little bit of agency there in the moment her final plea is don't go they're all going to laugh at you mm-hmm. she's like she's she's heartbroken for her daughter because she knows how this is going to end while that's true let's not also undersell how fucking oppressive margaret white was horrible. <laughs> she's horrible yeah i mean I, absolutely yeah but i mean it's i i like though that there is a sincere love but not only with margaret to carrie but carrie also sincerely loves her mother she's upset that she kills her mother i mean she dies because she's holding her mother and she's taking her mother her mother's constantly trying to put her into the prayer closet and she's you know always trying to get away she's like no no i don't want to do it don't put me in there or whatever and then at the end of the movie she takes she voluntarily pulls her mother into the closet with her Mm-hmm. That's I think the other read of what I was saying with the ending is that Carrie is doing it 
either before her mom or because she believes she believes what her mom said. And so she, without even maybe realizing it, makes mm-hmm. them suck to hell. She's not yeah. really, but she's sucking them into the earth. And I mean, she, there's some, there seems to be, I don't know if we're supposed to think it's an accident the way that she crucifies her mom or if she does it on purpose or if she does it subconsciously mm-hmm. because she, that's been, she's seen that figure for so long and she's yeah. getting back to her mom about it. And then she feels guilty. And so she feels guilty in the way that her mom does. So she sucks them into the earth as if she's sucking them into hell. Yeah. Yeah. I always read it as uh, subconsciously because of how much she had seen the crucifix that it was just, mm-hmm. that's where things went. Which I, that crucifix, by the way, the most horrifying thing in the entire movie, it is so, and it, like, isn't it? So I was reading uh, about this. Uh, it, it's fuck. Yeah. The eyes glow and everything. It is horrifying. In my notes, I wrote Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is terrifying. <laughs> um, but I was actually because what's weird about that the the crucifix is that he has like arrows in his chest. Mm-hmm. And I was looking into it, and apparently, like it's actually supposed to be Saint Sebastian, who is like a martyr. Yeah. Uh, I don't know very much about it. Like it's a you know a, a Catholic thing, yeah, and yeah. I did not grow up Catholic. <laughs> um, but there's almost no, something but- that's kind of ironic about the idea that they have what they think is a a crucifix of Jesus and it's not even Jesus, you know, like that it's just this other warped angle on their, on her fundamentalism. It, it's that like is. when people have uh, uh, pictures of Obi-Wan Kenobi and they think that it's <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Oh man, that would be great. That would be, if they ever do another remake of Carrie, they should just have a picture of Ewan McGregor in there. <laughs> so um, yeah, talking about the mother daughter relationship, God, it, it is so, so tragic because of how oppressive Margaret White is. And yeah, fine. She loves her daughter, but I don't think that gives her a pass. Like for me, no, it's, not at all. Yeah, she fine. She loves no. her, but she's fucking oppressive. Like full stop. The part that's so tragic to me is how much Carrie loves her mother, and you know, like the, the way that she goes along with so many things. Yeah, it's because she's being oppressed, and and her mom is making her do a lot of it. But I think that a lot of it is also. A, a very twisted way of like trying to make her mom happy, trying to just yeah, she has she genuinely wants to please her mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and which is a very typical reaction to a child in an abusive parent relationship. Yeah, and and it's so tragic because of how much she does love her mother, and that like at the end when when she gets back and she's like, "Mama," like mm-hmm. God, it it breaks yeah. my heart. It's just after, like that's... after the prom sequence, she just wants to be consoled, and, and her mom tries to kill her. Yeah, and her mom tries to kill her. Oh God, I love to the the see the scene where she's like looking for her mom and can't find her, and she's just behind the door, and her oh. mom literally stays behind the door long enough for her to take a bath. Like <laughs> that I mean, is commi- it is so creepy right dude. there. Oh. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the, the that that family relationship is just it 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 one of the things that's so tragic about it is you know from watching Margaret that is where Carrie was headed. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe she had more hope of turning things around because she did start breaking away from her mom. But because of how tragic everything went and she realized like, "Oh, this is what happens when I don't listen. I need to listen even stronger. Like I, I feel like if, if Margaret hadn't tried to kill Carrie, then she would have, that, that Carrie would have turned into just as big of a fanatic as, as her mom, mm-hmm. 
because she would have viewed everything that happened as, yep, mama was right. This is why I can't blah, 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 blah. And, well, and yeah, what's the one thing she hears in her head? It's the voice of her mom. They'll yeah. all laugh at you. They're all going to laugh at you. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, mom was right. And and that's part of what makes it so tragic. And and like you said, that's what you get with, you know, abusive family relationships and seeing that cycle of hurt and seeing that cycle of pain. And one of the other things, uh, you know, talking about like cycle of trauma that I do love uh, about what De Palma does with the ending is when you get that final jump scare with Sue Snell. Like, I love that it shows someone who has been through a traumatic event is going to have post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. It's not just going to be like, oh, this is the end of the horror movie, but I survived, so now everything's fine. And and it wasn't a jump scare of, aha, and the, the monster is still alive. It was a jump scare of, you know that Sue's going to be living with this mm. for the rest of her life. Like she yeah. is going to be suffering and, and it ends on such a tragic note. I, I appreciate the fact that the movie doesn't just end with the hand coming out. It cuts back to Sue yeah. and her reaction. Yeah. That's her mom is trying to console her and she's just completely inconsolable. I mean, she is just, again, yeah, it's that, that cycle continues on through, through Sue and she is, forever changed by it forever marked by this horrible tragedy um really really smart it's i mean it's the kind of thing where de palma is so expertly marrying the thrills that you want out of these types of horror movies with all of these like heavier thematic things that you might not necessarily clock while you're watching it but as you're thinking about it it's like oh shit yeah like there is so much depth to this movie and i'm always so impressed when uh, a filmmaker can do that and do that in like 90 minutes like you know he gets in and he yeah. gets out and he gets the job done and it's just 98 minutes this movie is it's, yeah. it's ridiculous how much actually happens in this film for an hour it, and a half and it yep. flies by i mean this movie i feel like i you know because i have kids and everything i almost never get through a movie in one sitting i got through carrie in one sitting i watched it with my wife and i was like oh wow we're like already at the end like when the prom sequence happens i'm like shit i can't believe we're already here mm-hmm. to be fair so, though when uh, you get to the prom fair. sequence that's the last third of the movie so it is true it goes on a long time. but but it is one of those movies that almost every scene you're like oh yeah oh yeah this is like an iconic scene and oh yeah so that yeah. helps so faster once you get to the prom scene everything after that like, oh right and this scene right? yeah <laughs> oh man so good the more we talk about it, the more i just like love yeah, it i'm like more and more yeah yeah <laughs> it's uh and too like the th- uh like to get back to what we were talking about at the beginning like i feel like all of those kind of idiosyncrasies in the film are part of like it simultaneously like kind of dates the movie and also kind of makes it timeless like it feels so anomalous even i mean like you said Nathan, this movie's almost 50 years old and it still feels just completely singular when when you watch it like there is no other movie like gary even though it inspired a whole lot, like countless, you know, imitations mm-hmm. and stuff. There's just nothing that feels like this movie, even in like De Palma's other work. There's, and despite the fact that he literally made another film about people who have telekinesis. <laughs> it is. I mean, it is one of those things where you think about um, how big a movie this was. And it's so weird because he is taking such bold risks. And I can't think of the last big movie that like really was like, yeah, we're just gonna have this unbroken 360 shot that just sort of goes faster mm-hmm. and faster. For reasons we're gonna really play with tone in a way that 
if it goes wrong, it's a disaster and the movie is terrible. Uh, it's really uh, bold. Yeah. And I mean, at the time too, like this wasn't really, this was like a cheap exploitation film is what it was supposed to be. Like, I'm pretty sure this was originally, originally released as like a double feature with some other like, uh, Red Fox movie that's like super homophobic or something. I can't remember, <laughs> but it was like it was like kind of dumped because you know they're like, oh, it's just a cheap exploitation film, whatever. And then it became this enormous hit, without which, like, we probably wouldn't be sitting here today. I mean, obviously, we wouldn't be sitting here today talking about Carrie, but we wouldn't be talking about Stephen King at all. Like, without Carrie, who knows where Stephen King's career would have gone? Because, like, mm-hmm, I think yeah. you know he's talked about how, like, yeah, the movie is not only an improvement on my book, but like, you know, if this movie had never come out and become a huge hit, who knows where my career would have gone. Well, and if, if his wife hadn't taken the book out of the trash, yeah, yeah. then the movie would never have been made. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating, uh, like series of, uh, things happening in exactly the right moment, hitting at exactly the right, exactly the right time that led to Stephen King's entire career. And, uh, and, and not just his diploma and diploma. Yeah. This, really launched a palm into yeah this you know this for a while he was bigger than some of his peers when he's, yeah. it's kind of weird to think about you know when you've got that group of lucas and spielberg and coppola and it's like for a while it was like he was the man mm-hmm. yeah. and this, this film had a lot to do with that yeah i mean man, it's that- funny to think that they were casting this him and lucas were casting this and star wars at the same time <laughs> oh yeah there's a great there's a video of uh william cat auditioning to play luke skywalker with uh i think he and amy irving are auditioning oh. amy irving's uh leia and william leia. cat is is uh luke isn't isn't this also where uh spielberg hung out and he met amy irving and yeah uh, yeah believe i've read some stories that he was kind of pervy and would just hang out and hit on her <laughs> yeah I, 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 there was at least on imdb trivia it was talking about how like spielberg would just like ask all of the women on set out and then amy irving was just the one who said yes <laughs> <laughs> oh that's sad but you know <laughs> it's kind of weird to think about too though because i feel like it, at least you know according to like easy riders and raging bulls like spielberg and lucas were kind of the nerdier guys who didn't really fit in as much with like the wilder you know coppola and de palmas of the world you know they were in that group but kind of on the margins a bit more particularly lucas i i mean that completely tracks yeah it's very interesting yep. he's now making experimental films just for himself so i mean <laughs> <laughs> he's got him locked away in the vault on skywalker ranch somewhere such a weird trajectory i want yeah, to know what true. kind of movies he's making like what kind of experimental movies i feel i thought his experimental movies were just like you know the phantom menace (laughs) (laughs) well i mean thx is pretty out there like that is true yeah he said he wanted to be more of an experimental filmmaker than he made star wars (laughs) i mean yeah he was the original director on uh, apocalypse now and he was gonna like actually go out into the fucking jungle and shoot on 16 millimeter and all this stuff like it's it's fascinating to think about what kind of career George Lucas would have had if Star Wars wasn't the biggest movie of all time. <laughs> yeah. And also, wasn't isn't there a story about how like when he screened Star Wars for the first time, like De Palma, oh, De Palma out like yeah, he was like, "This is shit. Like this is trash. Like what are you doing? Why are you making kids kids stuff?" Yeah, I mean, fun is something. Yeah, there's something that he kept saying. He kept repeating. And he was making fun of him during the screen. Yeah, he would, I can't remember what that is. 
Oh man. So they all, yeah, I think after Carrie, especially, they all seem have said they like looked up. De Palma was the guy. He was like, mm-hmm. he was the one that really broke through. Yeah. So, yes. Ted, have you seen the remake? No, wait, I wait, have. But before, oh. before we jump into the remake, there's one more thing that I don't think oh, yeah, we, sure. like we've given enough credit to. It's a very minor thing, but I love it so much that I, I feel like we need to talk about it. We've talked about the prom scene. We've not talked about how beautifully shot it is, especially how beautifully lit it is. The, the mm-hmm. use of color. Yes, it's very, you know, well, it's not 80s because it was before the 80s. But yeah, the, the, the use of uh, fuchsia and, and, and blue and, uh, and red such that beautifully lit. We have another couple. I mean, uh, uh, the Palma used to this, the tuxedo scene where they're all going out shopping for tuxedos. And we literally, oh, yeah, get a fast forward with them talking. Yeah. The, I, oh, God, I love that. That's one of those weird. other weird experimental touches where he's like, okay, this shit doesn't matter. Let's literally fast forward through it. <laughs> so good. So great. It, Glad it you felt, reminded me of that. Oh, and this movie uh, no edited Brooksy by Paul Hirsch, too. Like Paul Hirsch, the legendary editor who also did, you know, like Star Wars and, and all these mm-hmm. other things. Like, uh, yeah. Oh, God. So, yeah. Good. All right. So, before we yeah, start talking the, about the remake, is there any other major elements of Carrie that, that we need to discuss? Again, I feel like we could spend hours really diving into these themes. But, um, but are there any other main points? I will just say about the lighting, like, yeah, the way, I don't know what they were using, like, they were clearly filtering, because the way that the lights bloom, like, he he just, like, from the get, that and the combination of slow motion really lean into this sort of dreamy aesthetic that I Mm -hmm. think, like, it it does really help with the tone, where it's like, oh, every kind of, like, weirdly warped in a way that's almost beautiful and strange. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it feels like De Palma is very much uh, influenced by kind of like those early Giallo films because you yeah. get like all of that like very severe lighting, and then you also get like whenever they uh, you get like the silhouette of the hands on the rope before they pull it. Mm. Um, that's also Hitchcock, and then yeah. yeah, that's also of course, of course, the Hitchcock. I can't believe we haven't talked about Hitchcock before. <laughs> the Hitchcock influence is all over this film, including you know him ripping off the Bernard Herrmann score. <laughs> Yep. Which he, I, I read originally, he like Bernard Herman was going to do the score for this movie, but he died right before. It uh, taxi driver was the last one he did, I think, right? Taxi driver is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does. When I watched Body Double Two, I was like, wow, he he this this one really nailed the fake Bernard Hermanness of it. But yeah, he's clearly always going for that uh, that Bernard Herman style. Mm-hmm. So why not just use it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, uh, the the last thing that, again, we've kind of danced around but haven't directly said, the single shot of Carrie with the fire behind her, mm-hmm. one yeah. of the most beautiful shots in all of cinema. It's delicious. It is. Oh, God, it's so good. All right. I, I think we're good on the original. I want to keep talking about it, but I also want to be aware of the time, and also I do kind of want to talk at least a little bit about the remake. <laughs> <laughs> with one. Oh, I, yeah, I, 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 we haven't even been uh, specifying because there are, you know, two. There is the Brian Fuller scripted TV movie. Yeah, I keep talking. I'm talking about the Kimberly Pierce one. Is yeah. that's the one that I rewatched? I have They're not seen also, the 
the is, other one. And then, of course, yeah, there's the sequel. There's also the Carrie musical. Oh, and the Carrie musical, yeah. Yeah, apparently big cult hit. I didn't really know much about it until a friend told me about it. Yeah, I get to actually watch it in like a month. I can't wait. A local Are you theater. Serious? Oh, what? yeah, that's right. You told yeah, us about this. local theater troupe around me is doing that, and I'm so stoked because they killed Evil Dead the Musical when they did that. So. Oh, my God. Yeah, and it's one of those that's like uh, like reanimator the musical or whatever mm-hmm. where like – didn't you say you're trying to get like the VIP tickets? Or oh, I, 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 the I bought the prom seating ticket, yes. Yeah, so you're going to be splattered. Like the first row of seats are all prom tables. Um and I've been scouring Goodwill for 80, like 70s prom shirts and whatnot oh to wear. Oh, can't, please tell me you're going to get ruffles. Are oh, you going to get ruffles? You have to get ruffles. Man. Oh. Have ruffles and anything powdered, like powder red, powder blue, <laughs> you know, yellow maybe. We'll, I'm gonna, whatever I can find. Love it. So jealous. Uh, no, we, we are very specifically yeah talking about uh, the one from 2013 with Chloe, Chloe Grace Moretz. Uh, that is the remake that we are specifically talking about. So, Ted, mm-hmm. you have not seen this one? No, I've not seen this one, but I'm very interested to hear your thoughts. <laughs> it's I've certainly seen scenes from it. Do you, do you want to start with my thoughts or with Eric's thoughts? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Dan, I don't know. Okay. Dan, who, whose thoughts do you want first? Oh, Eeny, meeny, my with me nathan's oh nathan okay good all right so here is the very short version of my thoughts on the remake i think that it gives a more interesting portrayal of carrie and that's it a a much (laughs) much less interesting movie overall there are glimpses of things that it's (laughs) like okay uh no not as good it is not an improvement on the movie it is not a good movie there is plenty about this movie that is at at best grown worthy and several things that are just just outright terrible but i like the way that it handles carrie now it is playing a very different movie it is giving a very 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 different version of who carrie is so i feel like it is a drastic departure from the book Mm -hmm. but i like the way that it presents her. I can go into details in a minute, but Eric, what are your general thoughts on the remake? Yeah, I think that's what's the, I like that the movie takes a few bold swings in terms of the characterization. Like Chloe Grace Moretz had never seen Carrie before she played the role and deliberately avoided it. So she's like really making it her own and doing something different. And I think there's a really interesting idea in there where about like Carrie having more agency uh, like, for example, during the scene in the De Palma film where Tommy Roth's is his poetry is read and they talk about it or whatever in the remake, Carrie reads a poem um, and, and and then the teacher starts insulting her and the teacher starts insulting her just like in the original. Um, but like and then like throughout the film, like Carrie is actually like cultivating her powers, essentially like she's and it's it's an interesting idea because like it is. You know, it's a movie that's actually directed by a woman. It's directed by Kimberly Pierce, who did like Boys Don't Cry. You know, she's a very good filmmaker and she is very good with actors. Like she's obviously um, I, the the performances are, are excellent. Like Chloe Grace Moretz is great. Julianne Moore as Margaret White is such a brilliant bit of casting. And she also plays Margaret White 
very differently where she's much more timid. They kind of like do a very different version of the scene between her and Mrs. Snell, where in the De Palma version, you know, she's like proselytizing or whatever and coming in and saying, these are godless times, Mrs. Snell. And she's like, don't I know it? Well, or I'll and- drink. No, she says, I'll drink to that, which is really hilarious. <laughs> and then in the other one, she's working in a laundromat and Julianne Moore's working in a laundromat and she's like literally like stabbing herself with like a knitting needle because she's like prone to self-harm and she's much more she's much more like Carrie really yeah um and it's a really interesting idea I think the biggest issue with the remake though is that it's too it's too beholden to the original film like it it pulls so much from the original movie that like Lawrence Cohen still gets a screenplay credit like it lifts scenes and dialogue bits wholesale from the De Palma movie. And I think it would have worked a lot better if it was actually like a full on readaptation rather than a remake because those changes don't fit. Like because Carrie is too powerful too fast. And by the end of the movie, it's not a tragedy. It's just a straight revenge movie. And that's just not as interesting. There's no dread. Yeah. Those are my thoughts on it as well. It's that it, it, it didn't, take the brave enough chance to make it its own film. Yeah, exactly. You can't, we know that a Palma film is a classic. You're to remake it. You're of course, your film's going to be thrown into that shadow. So why not make something completely fucking different? Yeah. And it, it only did that in half measures. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. and, and it did bring in more from the book. Like it brought in some, some direct lines from the book that weren't included in De Palma's. But again, it's sticking too closely to something rather than taking the core of what the mm-hmm. movie could have been and, and really saying, all right, we're not, we're, obviously, we're not going to do the book word for word. We're not just going to remake De Palma's. We're going to take the idea of Carrie. And I do like the fact that it's putting it in 2013. You know, like some of the yeah. There's like some cyberbullying stuff that they mm-hmm. film the they film the opening scene and then uh, post it online. And then fucking Ellis from Die Hard shows up as uh, Chris <laughs> Parkinson's dad, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is awesome. Yeah. So um, so like some of those changes, I think, do give it a little bit of interesting ideas. Now, Eric, you said that you don't like how powerful she gets. I do like that's one of the things that i like just in terms of it being a a slightly different take where it is showing in in, you know in de palma's it was carrie has almost no agency and you're watching the entire movie of her almost just being a cardboard cutout of a human and then in uh in in this one in kimberly pierce's chloe's portrayal of carrie there's so much more of the like discovering who she is. And I feel like there's a lot more, you know, going along with puberty of realizing who you are and who you want to be and, Mm -hmm. and sort of going down that path. And I like that she has more power. I like that she is a more developed character. I like the fact that she, you know, is, is like trying to be normal and wants to be normal. And part of the reason that I like that again, it's the idea of it. Well, here's the thing that I like about it. And sure, it, it might not necessarily work as great as it could or should. And yes, it does stray from the original story that King told. However, uh, like Ted pointed out uh, towards the beginning, where, you know, it's, it's kind of a good thing that they didn't go with the more overweight uh, version of Carrie because we've seen that plenty of the overweight, uh, very religious conservative being bullied. 
And now because of Sissy Spacek, we have the very skinny nerdy girl who has also been bullied. Chloe, uh, Chloe's portrayal of Carrie is almost just like a normal person who happens to have a mother with a lot more issues. And, and so like, she's trying harder to actually fit in. She's trying to be more normal, but there's a lot more of her circumstance that is weighing down on her more. Yeah. And she pushes back against her mother a little bit more too. Like, you know, when she quotes Bible verses back at her mother about like how God's love is enduring and, you know, she quotes like Psalms 100 verse five, I think is what it is. Yeah. Which I can't remember that. And to me, in a way it actually makes her more relatable, you know? Just, just because I, I think that the people who have been bullied, it is very, very easy for the people who have gone through a lot of bullying to relate to the people that have been very heavily bullied. I think that there's also a huge, huge group of uh, of people, a huge part of the population that's somewhere in between. They're not the bullies. And they're not, you know, like just the, the most bullied kid on the playground. They're just, you know, mostly normal, but they still get bullied. And I think that sometimes it, it, it just gives a different representation for people to be able to identify with of like, you know what? Yeah, I have felt more like the 2013 version of Carrie than I have about the, the 76 version of Carrie. I think that there's probably more people who can relate to that, it, it, especially with the researching how to become more powerful, learning more about herself. I just, I, I like the ideas that are there again, might not be perfectly executed, but I like what it's doing. I have another caveat, but I want you to respond first. I think the, the other issue I have with it is that it's just too safe for a movie for a as, as a remake of a movie. That's so bold to have it be like at the very end when she's like specifically targeting bullies. So she's, it's not like, it's not as scary or horrific in the end because like she saves Mr. Desjardin. She, she picks her out of the crowd and puts her on the stage to get her out of harm's way. And that to me kind of feels like a fundamental misunderstanding of the text because, and it makes, I mean, at least of the Brian De Palma film. Um, and it, it's safe because, you know, you get the sense that only the bad people are going to be hurt. And it also kind of revels in the violence in a way that feels kind of gross to me. Like whenever she kills, you know, in the it's a little bit closer to the book because she like blows up a gas station and uh, she like picks up the car that um, Sue and the John Travolta dude, uh, not Sue, Chris really? and her boyfriend are in and like Chris's face smashes through the glass and there's like pieces of glass in her face and it looks you know i mean it looks like it's a good effect or whatever but like it like it it's like the kind of like good for good for her comeuppance that just feels really wrong for this kind of story that's about teen bullying you know it's like yeah she carrie was justified is kind of what the movie seems to be saying and i don't like that i i feel that feels that makes me feel dirty and, uh, and again, it's just too slick. Like, it's really nice. It's a really well-made movie in a way that, like, it feels like it's made for the CW kind of audience that mm-hmm. I'm just not. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work for me. It, it's an enjoyable watch. I mean, like, it's not like I actively hated watching it. It just, I don't feel like it comes together. <laughs> high praise. I didn't actively hate it. Uh, <laughs> Ted, you were about to say something? No, no, I know what you mean. Uh, you didn't. You didn't have a hard time watching it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very watchable. Like, you know. It's- yeah. So, uh, Eric, to what you were just saying, that was the caveat that I was going to come back to. Even though I do like the idea of giving a more normal person that you that, that does have more complexity, uh, that you do get some of the bullying, but also some of the desire to be normal and like all of these other things that I do like, rewatching it this time, the the thing that I just could not not think of was school shootings because mm-hmm. it is the kid that is that is bullied and because you do feel very justified and like yeah she's finally taken out these bullies and because she does have more agency and because she's researching stuff in the library on how to essentially develop her you know telekinetic ammunition there's yeah it i i don't know if that was the intention in 2013 there were too many school shootings for that to like not be on the on her mind yeah, but at the same time, there have been even more over the last ten years, and so even though at, overall, sure, it's a fine movie, it's really hard for me to like enjoy it because because of some of those things. Um, mm. And and I, I have other issues with it as well, but like that was the biggest piece of yeah. I like what it's doing for Carrie, but in a way that I. Don't because, like you said, it takes away the tragedy. It takes yeah. away the, the the thing that we've talked about on so many horror movies of doing a horrific thing doesn't undo the trauma that you've been through. And you know, we we've referenced this one a ton, but like with uh, Last House on the Left, when they kill the rapists at the end, it doesn't bring their daughter back, and you see that in in their pain. You don't see that with uh chloe's portrayal of carrie you don't see the you don't see the regret that you get with sissy spacek you don't see the oh my god what have i done i think you i think the movie tries not not as much you get some but you don't get that level of tragedy with it. it it's weird because like carrie kills all those people in her fit of rage and she like clearly relishes in doing it. And then when it cuts to her going home, it still tries to play it like the De Palma movie where she's like, I can't believe what I've done or whatever. Which I mean, it's, you know, it works fine, but it just, it feels kind of incongruous. Yeah. Um, I also think the characters are far less complex in this version. Oh, sure. Because, because of how much more you know about them. Like it, it's this kind of thing where it feels like it is less interesting because you know more. Um, it doesn't have the the kind of like ambiguity of of the De Palma movie. It's you know like Chris literally she's like a spray tanned girl who has a an enormous portrait of herself above her bed, and her to boyfriend is just fair, a straight though. up abusive asshole, <laughs> and he's not like an idiot. Like to- it, you know, it's just they they they're following the archetypes a lot more closely in ways that are less interesting. To be fair, that does feel like a very 2013 update to who those characters were in mid-70s. Yeah, but it's boring. What De Palma does so well is he uses really classic archetypes and cliches and then just has them do one thing in Congress. So you're just like, well, that, it just makes the character complex in yeah. a way that mm-hmm. exactly. like, oh, well, I didn't think they would do that. Well, okay, well, I guess they're a human being. And then you don't talk about it. You just move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this this definitely again. It just feels like yeah, these are the typical villain, you know, mean girl characters you get in every other teen comp. I think this is the thing. It just it feels so rote. You know, it feels like every other kind of movie that falls in this category you've seen before. Yeah, um, it is. It is a so 
it, it's kind of a pointless remake. Again, there's some fun things about it. It's not an, an arduous watch. It's long. It's worth watching. I've seen it twice. I yeah. watched it in the theater. <laughs> like, yeah, you I mean, know, I've, I've I've got the Blu-ray of it. I'll watch it again. It's fine. Oh, uh, I'm not gonna watch it again. <laughs> Two's enough. I'm not but gonna like, watch it know, again anytime soon. It's. I would fine. recommend people check it out. And I do feel like for a, I, I'm like a modern audience should watch the De Palma one for like it feels like if you watch the Carrie remake and you're like oh yeah this is just like every other fucking movie I will watch it's cool it's slick it looks good and then you watch the De Palma version you're like oh this shit's janky as hell like why would I want to watch this when I got the cool hip remake with Ansel Elgort in it as Tommy Ross or whatever <laughs> like I actually almost watched it in that order because I ended up watching both of them today and I didn't know if I was going to have time to get through both of them, which is the only reason that I started with De Palma's. Like, I have to make sure that I at least watch the one that we're going to talk about. But if I could have confidently had the time and knew going into it, it was like, yes, I'm definitely going to have time to finish both of these. I would have started with the remake with the with the very intention of how well does this movie work on its own without the immediate direct comparison and then what does that do for yeah. the Palmas? Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to do that. But but again, I, I think that it's fine. I've never watched it's, it without immediately preceding it with the original film. So It's just is- so... For it to be from 2013, it feels very mid-2000s. Like, it feels like a 2005 remake rather than a 2013. Yeah. Where it's... And, and you know, that... That might just be again kind of a, a minor complaint but it's just i don't know i i want to like it more but i don't it's fine it is it is a fine movie <clears throat> there are just some things about it that i do uh really enjoy that's fair dan ted we've been nathan and i've been prattling on forever you guys have just been patiently listening do you guys have any other <laughs> final thoughts on either carry or any carry more to the remake than necessary <laughs> yeah i know that went on a bit, bit more a bit longer than i expected but fair enough no it's that's it, fine it, when asked i'm like it's a fine film yeah you know, it's it's watchable not one that you know if with, with the re- original on my shelf next to it i don't ever reach for the remake first sure unless yeah. they point hard to remake a movie that's not only that good but also like invaded culture so much like mm-hmm. Eve through the night like like people remade those scenes for so long in you know animaniacs this seems like it was one of those yeah so mm-hmm. classic and so it's like you kind of i wouldn't touch that if somebody mm-hmm. were like you want to remake this incredible classic it's like no why would it <laughs> yeah. be at best people are going to be like yeah you got to do the exact opposite and then make it its own movie i guess Right, and that's kind of that's kind of what I was thinking. It would be better if it was just like a full on like we're not paying homage to De Palma. We're pretending the De Palma movie doesn't exist at all. Um, I that's that's my thing with remakes. Is like if you're gonna remake a movie, remake Carrie. Why not remake like one of the other Stephen King adaptations that are not as successful? You know, like remake the Dark Half. There's a lot of cool stuff in the Dark Half. I really like that movie, but like. It's not all there, you well, it's, know, or remake. It's because if they remade the dark half, how many people, which not, they actually are remaking, the dark not half. within the horror community, not within Stephen King fans, but how many just in general would be saying, Oh, do you know they're remaking the dark half? <laughs> you know, like, but with Carrie, if they were remaking Carrie everywhere, you would hear they're remaking Carrie, they're remaking Carrie, they're remaking Carrie. Yeah. So or like, you know, remake it. That was, 
Right. I mean, like, again, like that's a good that's an example of a good idea. Like we're going to actually like make a feature film adaptation of this movie and not do like a miniseries like that's that was an example of a great remake, I think. So um, two two quick things. Uh, I'm going to use an example that I think is a good example of a remake, despite the fact that as a movie, especially comparing it to the original, I do think that it falters a ton. But I think that. God. Uh, anyways. We've already done a full episode on it. I'm not going to go into too much depth, but honestly, the RoboCop remake, I feel like is, is a good, fucking awful. Is a good example of a remake because I didn't say that it's a good movie. I didn't say that it's an no, improvement. Sorry, sorry. It is a good example of a remake of. There's no way that we can touch this classic. There's no way that we're going to top it. We have to do enough different. And I do think that enough was done differently that it does not feel like it's trying to remake the same movie. I have issues with it. I have problems with it. It's not a perfect movie. There's a ton of stuff that could have been done way better. But I I do think that that is an example of if you're going to do a remake, you can have enough hints of, hey, remember this? But we're trying to do something different. Second thing, uh, Dan, Eric, did either of you watch the uh, the alternate ending to the Carrie remake? I did, actually. Yeah, I think it's actually pretty cool. Yeah, the alternate ending, so much better. Spoilers, but whatever. I don't think that uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't think that uh, Ted's going to end up watching it. Um, <laughs> Ted's the, like, eh, you guys didn't sell me on it very much. <laughs> the ending is much closer to, to De Palma's, where there's oh, a no, hand it's... that comes out. And then, uh, you know, you have the no, jump there's scare. no hand that comes out. There's a the, hand that comes out in the alternate ending. Oh, in the alternate ending. I'm sorry. In the yes, alternate ending the at the end, there is a hand that comes out, grabs Sue's arm, and then it cuts to uh, Sue being held by her mom and she's screaming and her mom's trying to console her. And I, I hate what leads up to it because uh, it's just. It's, uh, the, okay. So Sue is pregnant sue is pregnant in that in the and the the remake. scene where chloe is reaching or carrie is reaching out to sue and she's like it's a girl it's just like i hate that scene i hate that fucking scene you so hate much. it yes oh it's so awesome. i hate that i love scene. it because it it's actually leans into like the sh- it leans into something that's kind of schlocky and weird in a way that the rest of the movie does it but it's and it also is a but great that's, but that's the point because the rest of the movie doesn't there's no other part to where it feels so disjointed so cool it feels like drag me no. to hell or some shit it's awesome God, I love drag me to hell. Uh, it also is, is cool because the movie the remake starts off with uh julianne Moore actually giving birth to carrie yep. and like pulling some scissors and she's about to stab her and she does she hesitates and i think the movie's trying to make some really interesting like connections between like you know birth and the menstrual cycle and and i like that it's like it begins with a birth and ends with sue being pregnant and also at one point Carrie like can tell that it's a girl through her telekinesis it's really fucking stupid exactly also <laughs> at one point tell it also uh at one point Carrie burns something with her telekinesis which doesn't make a damn bit of sense but whatever eh, sure <laughs> but but yes uh I like what the scene is doing it's I like cool thematically idea. but how it plays is just bad but yeah. uh <clears throat> yeah the hand that comes out is when she is giving birth and the doctor's like all right there it is, and then a hand pops up, 
So like you're you're watching like from belly down to stirrups. Yeah, the hand and comes then, up. Like comes a giant bloody hand comes up and grabs onto yep. her belly, and it awesome. is it is by far the best scene in the movie. And Fucking it's the rules. Alternate so ending. Cool. <laughs> That's so awesome. If if they had leaned uh, into that, if they had gone, you know, Eric, you mentioned Drag Me to Hell. If they had gone a bit more Sam Raimi, just over the top, over the top, ooh. schlocky, that would have been well, amazing. Yeah, Sam Raimi's carry, the yeah. Sam Raimi carry, that'd be so good. Uh, yeah, that'd be a fun experiment. Yeah, like who would we want to see remake carry? Uh, Sam Raimi, or, or just yeah. I mean, I, we already answered, but like, <laughs> I don't know. Um. I um just just watch. Oh, you, you're thinking? Instead. I thought you were trying to. Come no, I was. I was thinking. I was trying to think like, who would I want to remake Carrie? Yeah. I would. I'd rather just watch Jennifer's Body instead <laughs> of another remake. Oh, yeah. so you, you can get a um. Okay, oh, yeah, Karen Kusama would be great. Yeah, I mean, I guess she already kind of did it, but whatever. <laughs> kind of. Uh, Robert in the chat said that he would want Alfonso Cuaron uh, to to remake Carrie. Interesting. That's an intro. I wonder why. Like I'm curious. Like I would have never thought of him for that. Yeah. Hmm. Not- Anywho. All right. Uh, yes, yeah, so we've been going on for a while. Yes. I do I'm love this on. movie, despite some of my critiques. I do not love the remake. Despite some of the things that I think it does well, uh, Ted, any final thoughts? Any any last words that you want to say uh, about Kiri or King or uh, yeah? Uh, I don't know. I I keep now. I keep thinking about this idea that I've come up with that the way to do King is almost to go like ex, ex, explore the themes in extremes, like Kubrick mm-hmm. or and that's the way you can do it successfully. And I don't know if that holds true for every King adaptation. That's good, but it seems like it might be an interesting, it's, it's something I, now I want to go watch more King and be like, is that yeah. true? Or that out of my ass. I actually completely agree. Like I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I've watched so many Stephen King adaptations. And I think that the Stephen King adaptations that don't work are the ones that are the most literal adaptations. Like if they're just pulling exactly what's on the page, it usually doesn't work because King's tone is so specific and oscillates so much between like, you know, really goofy, like being very goofy and then very earnest and then very horrifying and like sometimes all in the same scene. And it's just so hard to like nail that in a movie because it feels so jarring. Um, but yeah, I think like you really do have to go to extremes or really lean into one specific tone um i will disagree with you sir we literally just talked about silver bullet where you can have silver all of silver those. bullet is an incredibly over the top movie though so i think that that's with is not an extreme film he's Come an on. extreme yeah exactly uh-huh. <laughs> but i'm saying you have the emotional connection and the the horror and the violence and the comedy it's also you know like expanding from a relatively short story I mean, even with like, even with the more like grounded works, like, like I, I recently watched Dolores Claiborne. That movie is fucking incredible. Um, but like, it is still like very, the, the performances are still like pretty over the top. They're like leaning into their main accents. And then there's like, there's this extraordinary sequence of that movie during a, uh, during an eclipse that feels so 
surreal and it and it like kind of it, it's I don't I can't even begin to describe it like it's just it's gorgeous but it kind of leans into the artifice of it in a way that you wouldn't get in another thing or like like the Green Mile kind of really leans into some really sentimental kind of stuff and leans into the humor of that in a way that you don't normally get in a in a very dramatic film about a guy on death row or whatever like I don't know I th- I just think that you have to you really do have to go pretty broad with those movies for them to work i i think that i've thought of a way to condense a lot of those thoughts down the best king adaptations are not trying to be king but they're not thinking that they are better than king Mm, sure so so they're putting their own spin on it they're taking the core of what the story is they're recognizing what about the story that King puts into it makes it so good and then giving it their own flair, but not in a, well, I don't know how to do this better than King ever told. So they're not trying to change what's at its heart. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Why not? Yeah. All right. Um, uh, Dan, any closing thoughts on King and or Carrie? Uh, no. In the almost 50 years since this, this has been made. This has been a tough King adaptation to ever top. It's it's crazy to think that you know the first adaptation is one, if not of the best. Yeah, showing yeah. your hand a little bit for the uh, King punch out. Then <laughs> maybe <laughs> uh, doesn't mean it's the one I like the most. Very yeah. true, Eric. Closing yep. thoughts on Carrie. Uh, Carrie is great. Uh, you should watch it, uh, and then watch it again, and then uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think I'm all carried out. I, yep. I've, I've gotten a little carried away this episode. <laughs> oh, <So. laughs> um, carry on my wayward son. Uh, it was really dumb, but yeah, good movie. <laughs> As usual, my my final thought is yeah, good movie. Watch it. <laughs> Video monsters recommends. Eh, it's fine. Watch it. Uh, yeah, I I adore uh De Palma's carry. It is a classic. It is amazing. There's flaws, but it it hits every emotional tone and every thematic tone with uh, w- with just great technicality. Beautiful, heartbreaking, tragic. Love it. All right. Uh, Ted, where do you want people to find you? Where do you want people to follow Giving Birth to a Butterfly uh, or your production company? Um, I know that you already said some of that at the beginning, but just to remind people where they can follow you on the socials if you want them to and or um, where some of your work is going to be screening if you're able to announce any of that. Sure. Yeah, I think we'll have some news soon. Um, I usually post it on my own, uh, Ted Schaefer, at, uh, on, on Instagram. I use Instagram and, and Dweck Productions, D-W-E-C-K, always has the updates, both our website and our Instagram. <laughs> And uh, be sure to go back and check out our episode that we did um, interviewing Ted and uh, Cora to Patrick. And then uh, Annie was on that one as well. Um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Cannot, uh, cannot recommend that enough. Love that. Cannot wait till giving birth to a butterfly is in distribution so I can watch it again. All right, Dan, where do you want people to follow you? You can find me over on Twitter at HBO to front row and HBO to front row.com. And Eric, I do not have a stupid carry pun to uh, lead into your socials. So where do you want people to follow you? Uh, I'm 
I'm on Twitter at the Chimerican. It's T H E C H I M E R I C A N. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at Chimerican Reviews and on Letterboxd at Eric J A Y. And you can follow me slash the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Video Monster Pod. You can also follow me personally on Letterboxd at The Gargyle. That's G-A-R-G-Y-L-E because it's a gargoyle wearing an Argyle sweater. And Eric, what should people do if they enjoyed this episode? Uh, you should rate, review, and subscribe to Video Monsters wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, leave us some five-star reviews. Tell your friends about us. Spread the love because we... Uh, yeah, we want we want uh, people to listen in and have a good time. I don't know, <laughs> something like that. I'm and good at this. Dan, you're great at this. You're doing Thank a great you. job. Thank you so much. And Dan, nobody's uh, gonna laugh at me. Why should they come back to keep listening to us? Damn it! I knew you were gonna do that, and I did not have stuff because we've got more King episodes coming up. I can't remember all the ones we've. Got. Uh, and be sure to join us in Discord where we record uh, usually Tuesday nights at 9-ish uh, with this entire King series, obviously. That is um, not what we are doing because we have more episodes than there are Tuesdays in September and October. But just follow us in Discord. Uh, uh, the, the link to the server. Sorry, guys. I'm getting real tired, like, really quick. <laughs> Uh, join us in Discord. The link to the server is in the episode description. So just scroll down wherever you're listening to us and join us there uh, and be a part of the conversation, which sometimes goes on much, much longer than any of our coherence can stand. Yep. Yep. All right. Ted, once again, thank you so, so very much. This was an absolute blast. Uh, you're, you're always welcome to join us. Love Carrie, love talking about Carrie. What what could be better? Exactly. <laughs> Nothing. Nice cold PBR, like John Travolta had. <laughs> he drinks it. It's like going down his chin and shit. God, this movie's so good. Uh, uh, what a day. All right. Um, that's been it for this episode of Video Monsters, where we take movies and Stephen King goddamn seriously, but not ourselves. Good night, everybody. <laughs>